Hey, it's Michael, and welcome to another podcast episode. Before I get into today's episode, we wanted to make an offer to you. If you go to firmsconsulting.com, you will see a pop-up or you'll see a place to add in your email address or you can register on the Firms Consulting website. If you register onto that website, you get put into an exclusive list. And what you get in that exclusive list is samples of the content we have available to FC Insiders. So that said, I hope you enjoy today's episode. Hello, this is Chris Parova. Welcome to another episode of the Strategy Skills Podcast. If you want to strengthen your strategy skills, get the overall approach using well-managed strategy studies. It is free download. Go to firmsconsulting.com forward slash overall approach. It is firmsconsulting.com forward slash overall approach. And our guest today is Lisa Carmen Wan. Lisa is a former four-time USA national champion and Hall of Fame gymnast turned serial entrepreneur, angel investor, and venture capitalist. Welcome, Lisa. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Lisa, so let's start from your career as a gymnast, very successful career. Take us back and maybe you could share with us what do you think were some of the key reasons for your success as a gymnast? So I started gymnastics when I was nine years old and I really was passionate about it from the very beginning. And I think that the number one thing that I learned from it was just the ability to fall and get back up again. Every time I encountered failure, every time I literally fell in front of thousands of people, I found an inner strength inside to learn how to get back up and continue my routine and be even stronger than I was before. And certainly a lot of that came from the discipline the ability to set big goals for myself and go after them unapologetically. And all of that, the the falling and getting back up again, really taught me to trust myself. And let's unpack discipline a little bit. What advice could you give to someone who has big goals, but they feel they need to be better when it comes to discipline? Well, I think it's just really asking yourself what is going to be the most important thing that's going to move you forward and how badly do you want it? And I think there's a lot of people who like the idea of being something like, you know, when you're little, you might want, you like the idea of being a rock star, right? In a band and traveling around the world. And then the reality of it is you have to practice the musical instrument day in and day out. You have to you know, do all the the not as pretty things behind the scenes and it's not all the glamorous things outside. And so it's it's really thinking through how badly do you want it and every big goal you're going to have to work hard and suffer and go through hard times for. So it's what's the what's the work behind the scenes that you're really willing to do to get to the big goal? Did you have to have those conversations with yourself or did you feel that you always had this internal drive that made you so disciplined? I have always had a drive to do big things and to be successful. I don't think that I, I'm not like a very, very disciplined in the way of like, I wake up at 5am, I do this by 6am, I do this by 7pm, 7am, I have no distractions. I am not like that at all these days. I was, as a gymnast, I was forced to, because you, the coaches tell you, you have to do this. As an entrepreneur, I set my own schedule and I'm not as disciplined as I think some people are, but that's also because I am a creative. Um, And so if you 
I, I think it's really about figuring out what are the most important priorities for each day. And then also the, the older I get, the more I think it's also important to rest and to listen to your body and feel uh, you know, it's okay if you have one day where you're very disciplined and another day you just, your body can't do it. <laughs> so, yeah. That is very true. I also always had this internal drive to do big things and it is very powerful drive. And if you spend time with people who have that drive, I noticed when I work even with clients and so on, you can influence someone positively in that direction. But in certain situations, there's not, big enough why for people to do it. And then this is where you start. You understand why do you want to do this? What are you creating here? So when you were a gymnast, it was clear you wanted to be the best. And talk us through the journey of reaching the height of your career as a gymnast. And uh, at what point you decided to switch and do something different? So I did it for 10 years and then I was almost made it to the Olympic games, but I ended up missing it by 0.25 tenths of a point. So I was Olympic alternate and ultimately, you know, I decided that that's first of all, not how I was going to end my story. So I actually ended up, uh, I got into Yale university during that same time. And I told Yale that I wasn't coming. So instead I bought a one-way ticket to the Russian Olympic training center, the most rigorous training center in the world. And I trained there for nine months and I ended my last competition at the USA national championships. And I won every single gold medal and athlete of the year. And then I said, all right, peace. Now I'm out. And I, I finished my career on top, like a winner, like a champion. And then from there I decided, okay, now I'm ready to end my career and move on to the next thing. And was it difficult to make this decision to end your career? It was, yeah, because it's, I, I didn't think that I, my body was done with the sport, but I think there was, you know, also pressure to go and start a different part of my life. I did feel that pressure because gymnastics isn't really a sport that pays you, <laughs> you know, a lot of money. It was definitely a, a sport of passion and, I, I think that I, I felt, especially with having coming from an immigrant background, you know, I got into an Ivy league, the top school in the world. And I did feel a responsibility to pursue my academic career too. Of course. Lisa, and you mentioned you spent nine months in Russia training. What was that like? Because I grew up there. It's a very different world. It's completely different culture. How did you manage to work productively while being in a completely different world, almost like being on a different planet? Mm -hmm. It was definitely very tough. It was nine hours of training, a lot of borscht, a lot of tomato, cucumber, stale bread. Did, we did not eat a lot of food while we were there. And it was very depressing because it was a, not a lot of hours of sunlight. It was very cold. <laughs> and I... Yeah, it was just military-like training and nothing nearby and without any distraction. So it was very easy to just say, well, there's absolutely nothing else to do. And I'm expected to be in the gym for nine hours. And by the time you finish training, you're so tired, you just fall into bed. And it's just day in, day out, military, you know, ath athletic training. So it was tough, but I... 
I wanted to be the best and that's what happened. That's what I was willing to do. In which city in Russia was that? Novogorsk. Okay. And then were you there over winter time? Yes. <laughs> that was going to be tough. What do you feel you learned from those nine months? Because something like that would change a person. Mm. I, yeah, I really, well, at that point, I was really focused on my comeback story because I, it was very devastating for me to miss the Olympics because I had dreamed about that for a decade. So I just, I think I could not leave and finish my career saying, oh, I finished my career because I didn't make it. You know, I, I was not willing to have my story end like that. And so I was just very focused on doing whatever I could to say, I finished that last chapter of my career, putting 110% of myself in, and I have no regrets. And so I think during that time, it was really just, again, proving to myself how strong I was and not just physically, but mentally, and that I could, I can train, think, create anything out of a bad situation. Do you think that that was the biggest shift in mindset or were there other shifts that are worth noting here? Um, I'm not sure. I, I think I wouldn't, I've had a lot of mindset shifts and I, I'm not sure that the biggest shift actually came while I was in Russia because I was so focused on just a very, very clear mission And I think a lot of the big mindset shifts have happened since my gymnastics career, as I have grappled with suddenly having much more freedom to pursue passions or figure out what my purpose is or where do I belong? How do I navigate being a young woman who's, you know, of color in very male dominated spaces and, um, Yeah, so I, I think that my whole quest in life has been to personally feel a level of confidence and power and self-belief that I frankly didn't have for most of my life. And I, yeah, was I, I have been just like testing myself to see like how, what does it really feel like when you trust yourself, when you feel powerful, when you feel confident, when you believe in your own opinions and your own dreams and you trust the universe will have your back. And I think that you already had that to a large degree. Mm-hmm. Maybe you did not vocalize it, but that drive that you deserve it, that you can be the best, you can be exceptional. You had it. That's why you did not stop. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In, what was different about that Russian facility that made it the best in the world, in your opinion? Oh, they just, <laughs> they were so mean to you. <laughs> they just really beat you down. And you, it, it really, I mean, when I look back at it, I don't think it would work in American culture at all. <laughs> Some of the, the Soviet training methods they, they use a lot of, you know, they make you feel small. They make you feel like you're terrible. They make you feel like you suck and you just feel like you need to prove yourself and you need to get better and you're never going to be good enough. So in some ways it's that sort of uneven power dynamic of, you know, beating you down until you feel like you're nothing. And 
and then you just you realize how strong you are and uh yeah it's tough love did they had also other things that they did differently in terms of maybe the way they were training you the actual exercises you had to do There was definitely longer hours. Um what's interesting is they spoke to me mostly in Russian and I didn't even speak Russian. But I understood body language, I understood tone, you know, you I know which part they can come up and they move your body and they tell you what's wrong and you realize that a lot of it you don't actually need to speak the same language. I I understand when they're yelling at me when they're unhappy at me and what I did wrong <laughs> and what I need to improve. So uh I I I think If any there wasn't really even that much difference in terms of the training. I mean, very rigorous ballet training, you know, hours of ballet, hours of conditioning, but I think it has to do more with just the level of intensity with which you do it. Um and and this is something that I think I've been learning recently is that I believe that the frequency and the energy with which you do something is more important than what you actually do. So my example with this is with in business today there's so many things online that are saying you know I made 10 million dollars copy my exact strategy you can pay $1000 to get my exact strategy of how I built this 10 million dollar business right and you can buy that exact strategy and you may still not make 10 million dollars even if you copy that person exactly. And so then it's not about the strategy it may very well be because of the energy the energetic frequency with which you're doing it right because if if I'm very passionate about my business and I'm like I care about my customers I care about the purpose and the mission you can sense that versus if someone says I'm just going to copy you and they're like they don't really care about the mission or the the product people aren't going to buy from that person the same way. And so again going back to the the intensity and the passion and like you can take someone who has no passion for the sport throw them in the Russian Olympic training center make them do the same ballet exercises and they still may never be as good as the person who's just like I'm going to do it with intensity and when you add on to that the number of hours of training it's just you know your body kind of goes into survival mode and you're like i just have to do this and i have to and and that in some ways is also training yourself mentally when you were there during the 9 months did you knew that you just needed to achieve a significant result and then it would be time for you to move on to the next big thing you want to do outside of gymnastics or you didn't knew it then yet and you only realized now i'm done it's time to move on once you achieved certain results. I was definitely after 10 years of doing anything, I think you can be a, a little bit tired of doing the same thing and I I definitely felt tired by that point in my career because I had been doing it for many years. I'd been uh I'd been champion for a number of those years and it's a very different feeling when you are the underdog and you're trying to become number 1 versus protecting your number 1 spot right it's like you're like okay i'm fending off all the people who are coming up and i i think i was ready to move on but i just needed to move on the right way and that was on top do you feel that 
the way you were trained during those nine months also caused some harm to you in terms of your confidence? Or do you feel overall it was beneficial because it helped you find even greater strength? So those nine months were not particularly different from the nine years with which I did gymnastics, to be quite honest. I had Soviet coaches, Belarusian, Russian, Bulgarian, Ukrainian, you know, all, all of those coaches. And so it's not like the styles were particularly different. It was just, you know, the, in the American system, I still had to go to public school, whereas in Russia, they just didn't go to school. Right. So they could train nine, 10 hours a day. So I, I don't think it was about those nine months, but I think overall gymnastics and the training, it, for all the positive that it gave me in terms of discipline and focus and perseverance and mental strength and resilience, there was definitely a lot of negative that I can now see that, um, yeah, when you, when you are nine years old starting and you go your entire adolescent life with coaches yelling at you, telling you you're not good enough, that you're not skinny enough, that you're not pretty enough, that you don't smile enough, that you don't, you smile too much. Now you're too fat. Now what you constantly hear people telling you what your value is. And suddenly if you ate some ice cream and then they find out the next day, they say, Oh, you need to lose two pounds. You have a very weird way of thinking about your body and, and your confidence. And so I definitely think that there was extreme pressure to be perfect, extreme pressure to live up to a standard of, yeah, of perfection. That's very hard. It's very tough and pressure to represent your country at such a young age. And, and that definitely, I think as a, as an adult, was tough for me as a woman. And, you know, when you add on to the fact that already in society, women get so much pressure to look a certain way and be beautiful and perfect. And so when you add on gymnastics, it's just exponentially worse. You know, you're, you're even that much harder on yourself. And I actually really understood what you were going through because I was at the same time you were training during your years of growing up, I was training to be a concert pianist. And I also had teachers screaming at you and all the experiences you mentioned at how it negatively impacts your confidence. One thing I would say about Russia is if you ever go back, there are a lot of amazing things about Russia. There are people there with so much warmth and kindness and such deep understanding of life and so on, strong family ties. So I hope you will be able to experience that part as well, amazing food, we have amazing movies and cartoons. So I hope if you ever get a chance, the experience is not limited to the experience that you had during those nine months. Just for everyone also listening, because I don't want to create that impression. So let's move on now. So you're coming back. You have this huge success and you realize, okay, now it's time for me to go to school and start my new life. So Talk us through what happens next. So I ended up attending Yale University and I now had so much more time on my hands, so much more freedom and flexibility. I could eat what I wanted to. I could be tired the next day and that would be okay. 
uh, I could go dancing and, you know, I could go out and eat and have fun with friends. And I never had that experience before, but also I had to find my next passion. So I had to figure out what I was passionate about academically. And that was very tough for me because I, I didn't know what I wanted to do. So I tried all these different majors and I, I tried psychology and history and economics and I ended up studying literature and uh, I loved reading and that was about it. So you studied literature and then after that you were interviewing and I think you went and worked on Wall Street. Mm-hmm. Yep. So talk us through that experience. You so probably I had actually... all the experience of interviewing with consulting firms as well, which will be very familiar to many people who are listening. Yeah. So I had a pretty unconventional way. So I ended up, uh, I interviewed for some, so at Yale, they had the management consulting firms come, the investment banks come recruiting the students. And I just did not understand. I said, what is management consulting? I don't understand. What do you consult? Who do you consult? Why would someone hire like a, a college student to consult them. I, and it's so funny to this day, no one could give me a good answer of like, what is management <laughs> consulting? And then investment banking. I, I also was like, I don't really understand. People tell me it's a miserable life. Why do I want to do this? So I actually wasn't interested in either of those things, but I did the interviews anyway. And I, uh, I, I got to the last round with one of the, I think Bain or McKinsey. And then um, I, I ended up not, uh, I ended up getting a fellowship, a paid paid year to go study abroad in China. So I took that to learn intensive Mandarin. And um, I was doing economic research in China. And there was a, a guy who heard about my research and he needed interns. Next thing I know, I'm an intern at a hedge fund. And I went to become on, an analyst, and then that's really, I was a very short amount of time on Wall Street, is just, just under two years. So you lived for almost a year in Russia, then for a year in China. What was experience like in China? Uh, China was different. I went there exclusively to study Mandarin. So I was in school, I was in Chinese classes all day, research papers. Um, it was definitely... Definitely a lot more fun <laughs> for me. Do you feel that that year there also changed you in some way? What were some key things in how it helped you develop and grow? I definitely gained more appreciation for my heritage. So I am Chinese by background. I grew up and was born in America. And it, I had never really spent that much time in Asia before. So I, I definitely, I think, just thought a lot about the world in, in terms of how sometimes myopic America can seem. Like we all think that America is the center of the world and you go, you leave it and you realize that there's, you know, especially in a place like China, which is a superpower, right? Um, just a very different way of life. And I, I had actually considered living and staying and working in China, Hong Kong, but, you know, somehow ended up back in New York. Tell us about the transition to startups and being an entrepreneur and so on. Yeah. So 
I knew Wall Street was not for me. Corporate was not for me. I don't like working for people. I especially don't like working for mediocre people. Not to say that they're mediocre. I just, uh, I, and I like doing things with impact and passion. And I didn't feel like I was passionate about that kind of work. And I didn't think it was very impactful because a lot of Wall Street is about making rich people richer. And that didn't feel purposeful to me. So I ended up um, just feeling like I didn't want to do it. And it was my parents were very unhappy with it. My boss was very unhappy with it. Everyone said, oh, you're giving up this incredible golden opportunity. And I just said, well, that's it doesn't feel like my golden opportunity, even though many people might consider it. And so I was just being true to my heart, I think. And I... Uh, ended up going through something called a startup institute. It was a, a summer boot camp to learn how to develop skills. I don't even know if it's available today anymore, but I developed some you know marketable skills in digital marketing, and I ended up starting a startup. I googled how to start a startup. <laughs> I googled how to get money, and. I Googled how to write a pitch deck and I hired my first CTO from Craigslist. <laughs> so I really had no idea what I was doing. I didn't know anybody in venture capital. I didn't know anybody in entrepreneurship. And I got into an accelerator with my Googling skills and I got my first $60,000 to start a company. And that company was, uh, it was, I call it my starter startup. It, which is the company that you have where you make all the mistakes and you learn a lot about yourself. And yeah, so I started from there and then I ended up trying to raise money for it and then realizing how difficult it was as a woman trying to raise money in a 95% male dominated investor landscape. And that was so painful that I ended up starting a community for female entrepreneurs who are all experiencing similar difficulties, raising money. And that turned into a 20,000 person female entrepreneurial community and a company and an events and community platform that was ultimately acquired five years later in 2019. Congratulations. Mm -hmm. Thank you. What surprised you about the New York startup community? Wow, it has evolved so much. I started in 2015. Now it's 2023, so it's been quite a few years. And I think that what I liked about it in the beginning was that it was very, it felt very inclusive. It felt like everyone was hustling. It didn't have the same ego that Silicon Valley startup community seemed to have. It was less about, oh, what's your valuation for this company? What's your valuation for that company? Which name brand VC did you raise from? I felt like there was a, it was a very comparatively to Silicon Valley, which was very competitive about name brands. New York has a level of diversity, not just in people, but also in industries that you can't be, you just can't be the big fish in New York because there's so many different industries. Like you could be the, the, best startup entrepreneur raised from all the best VC firms. And then the fashion world could not care less about what you're doing and vice versa. 
that is so true. Let's talk about good girl behaviors. What are some of the common ones and how did you manage to stop those behaviors in your yeah. Um, so in my book, my new book, I talk about good girl brainwashing and good girl brainwashing is all the societal media and, and media messages that train women to be small, polite, pleasing, nice, perfect, obedient, be afraid of risk, afraid of failure, afraid of offending people. Um, and to a degree, men have this as well. And I think especially men of color or immigrant men, but I focus on women because that's where my mission has always been on. Um, and it's, it's the type of behaviors that make you feel like you're not worthy to feel like other people's opinions and validation of you is more important. And it makes you afraid to bet on your dreams and afraid to trust yourself and advocate for yourself. Um, and I think it serves it, it really comes from a society that's, that is served by women being quiet. You know, it's easier when women don't realize how powerful they really are. And so my, my work and my book is all about helping women realize that you have so much power just by speaking up for yourself and for the people around you. Was it difficult to replace behaviors that were holding you back? with new behaviors? Yeah, it's been a lifelong journey. But I think even me 10 years ago, looking at me now, if those were you know, two, if I could bring those two Lisas together, I think she would look at me today and just think, whoa, <laughs> I didn't know if, if only I had known that I could be and feel as confident and as powerful as you are today. And it's not to say that I don't have hard days because it's definitely still very hard. And like the work that I'm doing is, is overturning the status quo, you know, like really helping people think a very different way about traditional systems, traditional infrastructure, but it's a, it is a journey and it is a very tough journey to face yourself and to admit to yourself that you have behaviors that are not serving you because a lot of us, it is very easy to just say, Oh, the world is against me. People don't like me. People judge me. I'm different and they don't accept me. And it's, it's their fault, right? Um, rather than taking radical self-responsibility and saying, okay, fine. The world's tough. The world's unfair. Now, what am I going to do about it? And if I'm not happy with the situation that I'm in now, how am I playing a role in keeping it that way? Because when you are, and, and as like 90, I don't know, 99, but like many, over 90% of people have things that they are just, they don't feel satisfied with their life. They don't feel fulfilled. And they're like, whether it's their relationships, their bank account, their family, their health, their body, whatever it is. Um, but if you've been unhappy about something for a long time, you need to ask yourself, what about the thing that you're unhappy with is actually, are you secretly actually, it makes you comfortable to stay there? Right. Cause it's, it, let's say you're unhappy with your body and you're like, okay, I, I feel like I've been overweight for 
five years and I've always wanted to lose these 10 pounds. And for some reason you're like, oh, but I just can't. It's like, I, I just don't like this or I have to, I have to eat for work. I have to drink for work. I have to do these things. Well, there's a part of you that secretly is okay. Like with being 10 pounds overweight, otherwise you would have done something about it by now. Right. Um, yeah, I think you can, it's, it's easier said than done, but you have to face those, those parts of yourself and saying, I need to stop making excuses and I just need to do it. There are two important things here to highlight. One is that when you're surrounded by people who are not treating you well, who are disrespectful, maybe even abusive towards you, the first question to consider to ask is, what are you doing to create this behavior? And then another important thing you mentioned that I would like to highlight because it's so important for people to understand is that sometimes when we are trying to fix certain behavior, but we are not finding enough drive to fix it is because we are benefiting from that behavior in some way. Yeah, exactly. So let's zoom in a little bit on behaviors. Were there specific behaviors that you identified in yourself that were behaviors that you specifically focused on eradicating? The fundamental thing that I have really worked on that I think a lot of, let's just say, any sort of minority faces is undervaluing yourself. And that's whether that's you're having a conversation with a client or a potential customer or a boss, and then my natural desire to want to lower my prices or my natural desire to say, you know, this is my price, but it's, it's okay. I, we, I can give you a discount, you know, to, to discount yourself before you even tried. And, and a lot of that just comes from you not being confident in yourself. You not being sure that you are afraid that someone might reject you, especially as an entrepreneur, when you're setting prices, I think pricing is so difficult as a consultant or a coach or an entrepreneur where you say, okay, how much is my time worth? Like, uh, what is my service worth? Cause you know, one man could be charging a hundred thousand for it. One person could be charging 10,000 for it. One person could be charging 1000 for it and they could be doing the same thing. And it just has to do with their level of worth in themselves. And so, so yeah, I think for me, it's really been that sort of, I, I really want to help women, for example, but I have also found that there are certain women who don't want to pay and don't want to invest in themselves. And so for me, it was like, well, what's the, what's the line between me really wanting to help someone and me then under or devaluing my own services and so, so yeah, it's been, it's been really just trying to stop giving away everything for free because I feel bad for people and, and also because I'm undervaluing myself. And that is such a common story for someone who is mission-driven. I really can identify with that because I myself mission-driven. I want to help at least 700 million people in the world to significantly improve their life, especially specifically reducing professional suffering and helping them realize their full potential. And the thing that you come across, you want to help everyone and you give away so much to the point that you are sacrificing yourself. And then there's this situation where you're spending a lot of energy and not enough energy is coming back. 
that is how you get burnt out and not able to actually fulfill your mission. And people who are usually not ready to pay you are not ready to work with you anyway, and they need to get to you down the road if they ever going to be ready to work with you. So as you were going through this journey of helping yourself really understand your value, what do you feel were some of the key things you have done or what advice you would give to someone who is now listening to us and thinking, okay, but I actually don't value myself enough. What advice would you give to someone? Well, the first thing is if you do notice that you don't value yourself, I think a very powerful exercise to do is actually stand in front of the mirror and look at yourself, like look into your own eyes and sit there, compliment yourself. Can you actually say, I love you to yourself? This is such an uncomfortable exercise for people. Like they can't sit in front of the mirror and literally look at their own eyes and themselves without feeling stupid or ugly or something. And we don't do that enough, you know, really take the time for ourselves and say, I I value me time. And because it's the only way you're going to have a strong foundation is if you can feel confident and powerful when there is nobody around to give you validation. If not, if no one ever saw your work, if no one ever gave you another compliment, if no one ever loved you and you just had that person in the mirror, could you like compliment them? Could you make them, could you make yourself feel good? Could you really love your body? And are you grateful for your breath? And are you grateful for your eyes that can see and your voice that can speak and your ears that can listen to music? And I think, I think that's the thing when you're so ambitious, we're always focused on the next goal and like, will someone, you know, give me this award, pay me this money, do something. Can I, then I can buy something that'll make me feel good. And we just don't take time to actually value ourselves. I love this advice. Something that I also found for myself. It's so powerful to just look in the mirror and even start from feeling compassion for yourself. We are so hard on ourselves, specifically people who are listening to this podcast. Everyone within Firms Consulting Community, we are all incredibly driven. We are where we are in our life, not because anyone gave us anything. We just crawled through things and bleeding and everything. And we were able to break out of our orbit multiple times and be so far from where we started that people don't even understand how you were able to get there. And with that kind of drive, often you're very hard on yourself and giving yourself compassion, looking in the mirror, looking into your own eyes and just feeling compassion for yourself. Starts with compassion, then love. It's so powerful. It really starts shifting things. So I love that you gave that example. For people who are looking for investors or for people who want to ask for a raise, are there specific tips that you could give in terms of how to navigate that process based on your experience of helping people? Yeah. So I think three quick questions. Number one, why you? 
Why are you the person to build this company, which is really founder product fit? And I need to really see someone where it's like, this is your, your life's mission. Like, why, why is this your life's mission? Come rain or shine, you are going to, like, you are going to be here to lead this company. That you're not going to, you're not just doing it for the money. You're not just doing it for the fame. You're not just doing it, I don't know, because it's hard. You want to do it because of it's, you're the right person to do it. Um, why this problem? Is this a big enough problem? Is this a problem that you can actually fix? Is it a scalable problem? Like, does it have the potential to give the investor the returns? Because it has to have a big enough problem in order for it to be a big enough company. And then the third is why now? And I think some people underestimate the timing of things. Like, why does this company need to exist right now at this moment? What economic, societal, technological trends are making it such that this is the moment that this needs to exist? And how will the timing actually help you help this company grow even faster? You know, what's the appetite in the market for it? And so I think if you can just think like, why me? Why this problem? Why now? And also have the level, again, of conviction in yourself that this is what you're meant to do and that you can speak about it with the right energetic frequency and that you genuinely believe that you're going to do it. That's really the first impression that you need to make when, you're, when you have the first meeting. So every first meeting, the only goal for a first meeting is to get to the second meeting. The only goal for your second meeting is to get to a third meeting. You know, it's like so many times we like, we just try and say everything. It's like, you just need to give especially in that first meeting, why you, why this problem, why now? If you can articulate that in the first meeting, then that's great. Then you also, of course, need to know, like, how are you going to make money? What's the business model? Like, what exactly is the product? Because I've definitely been in pitches where I've heard people, they're very passionate. They care about their mission. Big problem. Now's the right time. And I say, well, what exactly do you do? <laughs> what, is, what is your product? oh yeah, well, there's a content strategy and then there's a, this product and that product. It's like, what's your business model? And, and so you need, you need both, right? And if they can't answer what is the actual product, what is the business model, here is how we envision making money, then it's also very hard to, to, to fund. So I think have the big mission, know why you're the right person to start it, know why now is the right time, and then have a very clear grasp of, what kind of business you're in. Lisa, and in terms of energy that mm -hmm. you mentioned, how can someone get to a mindset and the level of belief that enables them to present themselves big enough and not devalue themselves? So sometimes I've noticed that there, there's kind of two types of people. There's people who devalue themselves regardless. They might know everything and they may be super prepared and then they just aren't confident for some reason. And then there's the people who are very confident, but then the investor asks one question and they get very shaky. And it's because you actually don't know everything inside and out about your business. So there's a level of confidence that will come when you know that you know your business inside and out, you know, every single number, you've thought of every question, you know, the competitors, you, there's not a single question anybody can ask you about your business that you don't know the answer to, right? You've that, 
even when you start with that, you're like, okay, if I know that and I'm confident that I'm the best person to do this, it's very hard to not be confident. And so if you aren't confident, I think you really need to ask yourself, what is it about my belief in my business or my belief in myself that deep down doesn't actually feel like I can be successful? The last question from my side, and this is my favorite question to ask. Over the last few years, what were some aha moments, realizations, maybe two or three, that really changed the way you look at life or the way you look at business? I would say more recently, especially since I've launched my latest company and I have put my new book out into the world. If you want to find out what that book is, go to my website, lisacarmenwang.com. And I think something that has really come just very recently as my confidence has grown is not taking things personally. I, I think that when you have really fought your way up and people haven't believed in you or it's been very hard, you can also, you also develop some like sometimes defensiveness. Like you get very sensitive if someone criticizes you and then you're like, no, but I did work really hard. Like, don't tell me. And I think that, it, you know, I, I am a, from an immigrant background. I'm a young Asian woman and I have a brand that empowers women in a very unconventional way. And I have gotten a lot of criticism. I've gotten people that tell us like, oh, it's cute what you do. And I'm like, no, it's not cute. You know, it's like, but now I'm like, oh, like I, I just, I realize that there are people who understand my message. There's people who want to support my mission and there's people who don't get it. And it is not my job to convince people who don't understand me or who want to purposely misunderstand me. And so now I've, I've rather than getting defensive or angry, I actually find myself getting quite amused. I'm like, oh, that's, that's very funny that someone thinks that it's, that they want to take time out of their day to criticize me or to tell me that my work is bad or something. I, I don't know. Um, yeah. So it, it's, it's a level of lightness and just like, I don't know. Life is too short for it to, me to take everything so seriously. Like I have a, I do have a very serious mission, right? I, I really want to create big impact, but I also want to have fun and I want to feel peaceful and I want to feel fulfilled and I want to have a good time with cool people. And I think that um, that's, that's been a big shift for me. Thank you, Lisa. Where can our listeners learn more about you, follow you, and so on? Yeah, so you can, I'm on all social media platforms. Instagram is my main one, and LinkedIn at Lisa Carmen Wang. Um, and then you can find my website, lisacarmenwang.com, and there you'll find my book, my venture fund, um, and then my investing community for women and also speaking engagements. Thank you, Lisa. I appreciate you taking the time to be with us today and sharing so many great tips and stories and lessons you learned from your very exciting journey so far. For everyone listening, our guest today again has been Lisa Carmen Wang. And if you want to strengthen your strategy skills, get the overall approach used in well-managed strategy studies. It is a free download. Go to firmsconsulting.com 
forward slash overall approach. It is firmsconsulting.com forward slash overall approach. Take care and I look forward to connect with you all very soon. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed doing the episode. Finally, I want you to remember that the only way to get access to our special offers, the only way to get our special pricing, and the only way to get samples of our content is to join the list on firmsconsulting.com. It's the only way also to get access to our unique advanced content that we make available to insiders. So if you want to get a sneak peek of things, test it out, see what's in there, this is the place to go. And finally, I want to thank you again for making us one of the largest podcast channels around the world for careers and for the 2 million downloads and counting.